Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The wait is finally over, and sport is back on Now TV. It's lights out and away we go! Where you can watch Sky Sports, Premier Sports, and BT Sport together and all without a contract. What a fantastic part. So whether there's a day, week, or whole month of action you just can't miss, you can now stream the lot. Oh, it's a fabulous goal! This is your sport on your terms. Search Now TV Sports to find out more. 18 plus content streamed via internet. Full terms apply. Slackers, it is Phil Taggart, it is the Slacker Podcast, and we're back again for a brand new podcast. Last week's one with Glenn Hansard seemed to go down really well. A lot of lovely messages uh, from you about that one, so thanks very much for listening to it. Uh, we've had a great time in the season. I've got two left, really, and then I think I might take a break of a week or two, because my book is coming out very soon, and the book is called... Phil Taggart's Slacker Guide to the Music Industry. Um, I've got 70 interviews in there with the great and the good of music. Um, I'm actually, I'm leafing through it now. Like, I've completely forgotten what chapters there are in it. Yeah, I've got people like Wolf Alice and Run the Jewels and Biffy Clyro and Charlie XEX talking about, well, here's the chapters. Getting started, the first steps in making music. The first gig, music videos, building a fan base, management, image, funding, record labels, publishing, DIY, recording the album, distribution and streaming, radio, online, print, PR, booking agent, touring and festivals, merchandise, how to make money, and self-care in music. And this is what it sounds like dropping. Boom. 348 pages, two and a half years later, and it is available for any musician or artist who needs a little bit of help. Just go to philtaggartslacker.com. And you can buy this book or you can go on Amazon as well. But remember, if you buy it on Amazon, 10% of that is going into Jeff Bezos' already bottomless pockets. So get it off the website. If you're fresh to the Slacker podcast, I'll, I'll sum it up for you. It is a podcast with awesome artists and we play their early demos. And this one is very special to me because I would rate the band that this artist was in probably in my top five bands of all time. I've been a foppish indie kid at heart. I'm a big fan of a, of a jaunty bass line and I'm a big fan of his guitar playing probably more than anything else. Uh, this week we have got Johnny Marr from The Smiths. I mean, this one absolutely blew my head off. I'd never met him before. Um, I've stood in the same room as him a few times, either watching him play or uh, watching him interviewed. And the guy just matched all of the expectations that I had of him. He was unequivocally the coolest person that we've had on the podcast. And he came in really prepared as well. He was really into the idea of playing an early demo. And I was kind of really hoping that we would get a Smiths demo, seeing as that was his first band. And he didn't let us down. He got a really um, 
kind of like a studio version or like a monitor mix. That was it. Yeah, it was a monitor mix of Gene, which was, I don't think it ever came out on an actual Smiths album. It might have come out in a compilation. And I think it might have been the B-side to this charming man. And I mean, to be honest, we could have spoke about the demo just for about an hour. Um, but we got some really interesting insights into Johnny's life in the Smiths, um, in Modest Mouse, in the Cribs. We spoke a lot about the Smiths. Um, and he kind of dictated where the conversation went. And yeah, it was very, very enjoyable. Probably one of my favorites to record. And I think you're going to enjoy it too. So if you if you like the podcast, um, spread the word. Like the, the, these podcasts get out there better on word of mouth than any sort of social media marketing or any of the rest of it. So if you like Johnny Marr uh, or any of the other guests that we have on the Slacker podcast, and feel free to share it on social media or maybe stand up at work, like stand up on your boss's desk, take your shirt off and start beating your chest and shout, I love the Slacker podcast until you're removed from the building. And it's fine if you get sacked. I will give you a job um, editing <laughs> this podcast. Jenny, who edits this podcast, is going to kill me. Anyway, right, I'm rambling on too much. Uh, the book is coming out in a week's time. PhilTaggartSlacker.com. Please buy it. And this is the Slacker Podcast with Johnny Marr in three, in two, in one. God, I really hope this is like the best podcast we've ever done. I've, I've run from Victoria Station <laughs> to get here. Johnny Marr, hello. Hi, nice to, <laughs> nice to be here. Well, you look, you know, you look fit enough. You're not too worn out. I'm all right. I had a, new, a week in New York eating really, really bad food last week. So I'm like try, trying <laughs> so my run best. It off. Yeah, I'm trying to run it <laughs> off. Run away from my problems and run away from the New York food. Yeah. Uh, how are you getting on? How's things? I'm all right, actually. Yeah, I've got a little bit of a cough, which is uh, a a bit random it's not not really like me so if i'm if i sort of splurting a little bit i apologize for that but no i'm doing all right i'm good sir kind of uh getting sort of getting ready to go out on tour pretty soon after a break of a couple of months but which has flown by you're gonna need to get rid of that cough before you go out on tour <laughs> you know i am actually it'll yeah. be vocal zone and oh no uh, i'm all about the vocal zones yeah yeah, yeah game changers yeah <laughs> so tom jones talking about i'm on a tv program and i thought well if it's, if good, it's good enough, enough for tom, for tom the jones it's good enough for me <laughs> do, you, do you have like the sort of like vocal warm-ups and stuff that you do but before a show i know yeah. a lot of people have got their tea regime and won't no, speak to people and things like that I, sh- I should speak less to people but I sort of like the kind of energy and the buzz of before going on and I kind of I'm a real pacer about but I do have vocal warm-ups so you, you have to do them and I think I think if you don't I mean why not you know what yeah, I mean yeah. I think and all um all the different singers I've worked with over the years they've had their variations of of uh warm-ups like the Germans in the cribs would lock themselves away and behind the door you could hear them absolutely screaming at each other <laughs> like sort of sibling screaming you didn't know whether they were killing each other or just whatever that, themselves that, that could have been it when you've got like uh, three of the same family in yeah, there yeah. I've walked in on their room before when before they've played a, a show and they were listening to Queen like at, at, like the, lo- at the loudest possible setting well that was either before <laughs> I joined or afterwards I think because after. I think there was an yeah there was because almost immediately after I left the cribs they did a Queen song because uh, they knew that I had a little bit of a let's call it a blind spot to Queen, <laughs> but they grew up really loving loving all that stuff. And, yeah, uh, yeah, they were big big into Queen. Yeah, so we're we're going to start with the the demo as we as we usually do, um, and yeah, like I, I just kind of like ask almost like going whatever you give me, um, and why did why did we sort of uh, fixate on on this on this song? Well, this this song is Gene by the Smiths and. Um, I'm aware that officially it's not a demo, but... Uh, That's it, cancel the podcast. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> officially. No, because if there's any clever dicks out there going, oh, well, you know, it was a B-side of a track. But uh, as a recording, it, 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 um, we put it on the B-side of this charming man, but it was a monitor mix gene of um, an aborted album bef- that we did before the first album. And, um, you know, when it was picked... Um, I think to be fair I think it was Morris's idea to put it on the B-side by him and Jeff Travis at the label Um, 
I remember just for having a five minute think like really because it's not finished you know it's not um, this this version we've got on cassette which we've done with Troy Tate as I say we, we it was a part of a the aborted first album sessions that we did with Troy Tate uh, that really has a lot of merit but uh, you know me being we'd only put one single out before then and I thought we well, are we really going to do that are we going to put a track that's just a monitor mix out but, um, but your inner perfectionist would be like what are we doing why, why? yeah but I soon came no I mean I came I got on board pretty quick with it I came to realise that yeah. it just sounded great and it's very unadorned as people will be able to hear but the um, the reason really I picked it is is uh, aside from it being a you know a good and sometimes overlooked song is that to me it, it's uh, it really it's uh, it, t- it sort of typifies that period of the group before we re- before we we uh, bounced onto the scene yeah. bef- before everyone got to know us it, it absolutely did we had a quite a sh- actually quite a short by could have been much longer sort of apprenticeship or gestation period of maybe a year when the, when we became a four-piece. The genesis of the Smiths is in, you know, very, very short terms. At first it was me and Morrissey, and we, there was just us for quite a while, me and him writing songs, and Gene was one of those early songs. And then we got Andy Rock on bass and Mike Joyce on drums, and we started playing gigs, you know, normal what normal bands do. And what's great about Gene was that it's part of that period before we became pop stars and we were just an unknown band playing to you know 20 people and it was ever growing when the music press got on us but i'm telling you because i was there <laughs> this was this was us at our peak of that early period before we got known a... without a doubt and and it and it was actually quite a brave move to put a, a monitor mix an unfinished mix, essentially, on the on the B side of your sort of hit single. I tell you what, let's let's head in. Um, we'll hit play on it, and then we'll come back after it and uh, pick it to pieces. <laughs> yeah. was <laughs> a demo of the Smiths and uh, Gene and yeah I just I, I, like, well, the first thing that comes to my mind when, when you think of like demos or early tracks when it comes to a brand new act is that it's not going to be fully formed it's not it's not going to be where they end up but I mean it feels pretty fully formed like the, yeah the, it does yeah where where was the the growing pains? Like I can't see. There any. were no, there were some, but not many of them. And that was that was really because it, he says rather immodestly. But when Morrissey and I first come come together and we were strangers, I'd been really working on my thing, uh, you know, furtively away in my room, and I'd sort of had that sort of together. So in other words, like the overdubbing of guitars and on little. I keep thinking it was a three-track machine that I had. I had this little cassette machine that, I, that we used to write on. I'd been working on that for quite a while, and he, he was already had been writing lyrics for a number of years. So uh, our early stuff, the actual essentially the songs didn't really need to change that much from when you were the, the demos. We very rarely did demos. I mean, it was only really we did stuff and... From after the first album, we didn't demo anything. We You've just kind of done your did. apprenticeship solo before you got together. Yeah, we did. We did. But if if anything, really, the, the very earth, nascent early, maybe three or four songs out would be out. Um, maybe even just two songs that the Smiths went in to do a demo with. There's two demos actually, um, and um, they 
if anything, the only things that would have changed is maybe the tempo. Yeah. And that was, you know, something that I learned very quickly about, you know, just needed to put the right energy into it. And, um, but aside from that, yeah, they were pretty fully formed. I mean, I was very uh, conscious. I enjoyed the arrangements and the, uh, you know, I, I didn't, there wasn't a lot of uh, difference in, in the, the way we wrote the songs and the way they were recorded because, in other words, there wasn't dead long bits that then suddenly got chopped out. Yeah. Very, very little of but that. You were never a band that was going to run in into power chords and guitar solos anyway. Like it was kind of like against the against the grain of what the Smiths yeah, were all we, about. Yeah. That's right, and you know we never veered into that at all. If I was doing a guitar break, which happened very rarely, um, it was a break. It was a very, it was a composed break because up, up, you know, I grew up for the the seventies, and as much as I really loved guitars and everything about guitar music, that side of things that was slightly undisciplined and and just boring and indulgent. Yeah. So I, Jimmy I, Page standing out doing a guitar solo for eight minutes, John Bonham doing a drum solo, Moby Dick for like ten minutes. Like you just could, couldn't have it uh, because obviously, no. like you listen to music before punk, and that was kind of like the staple. Your five minute track with it fading out towards the end because all the musicians were so drug addled they didn't know how to finish it. <laughs> well, it, it was because virtuosity was revered. So aside from the taste police being, you know, having been absent for years and years yeah. and um look you know i don't i don't have per se have a problem particularly now with virtuosity if it's someone like john coltrane yeah or ravi shankar or these absolutely amazing musicians who are on their instrument telling a story and being absolutely amazing because it's it's part of being expressive it's not just for the sake of it but what we're describing really are these sort of bloated sort of 70s values where it was just like showing off look at me doing all this sort don't of really get much, nonsense. M- much of that anymore like when I was growing up in school we used to refer to those musicians because there was boys that were playing bands and they could just about hold the band together and there was the other guys that would do Metallica solos and all the rest of it and we used to refer to them as the sweaties <laughs> like they're, they're sweaty musicians they look like they've been trying really hard <laughs> It does well. Essentially, to me, it it didn't really all of that guitar kind of particularly on guitar didn't sound like music, and it didn't sound like the music I liked anyway. It didn't sound like music to me, and um, so the thing with you know with what you can hear in Gene there is a very deliberate, uh, in my mind, uh, a very deliberate attempt to not be not be any longer than a Motown single or a girl group mm. single. It's very very important that. Um, to the Smiths, the formation of the Smiths, that I'd for a, a year beforehand got obsessed with the girl groups, the Shangri Las and um, and the Ronettes and the Crystals and all of that. So that when I, and one of the reasons I approached Morrissey was that for some reason I was a, I was aware that he knew about that stuff, and it was only when I actually went in his bedroom for the first time, knocked on the door, and we met properly, and I saw his box of records I, I was like wow me and you really are the only are, are the only people on the planet who in our rooms have got this like collection of because very very elitist and quite peculiar I mean they're amazing records yeah. I mean it wasn't just to where be, did he keep them was it like, he had them in a, a 45s box the same as I did yeah yeah and you know famously you know when you know it's been told a lot but it is an amazing kind of story you know so he's just going about his Wednesday afternoon or Tuesday afternoon whatever and then the, the door there's a knock on the door and a complete little stranger, I, I yours truly, you know, is yeah. standing there. Yeah. And then, and the next thing, I'm in his bedroom and and going through his record box <laughs> and, and saying, "Here I am." There's a lot of you need a lot of trust in someone to let them go through your record box. I, I, I Especially think. if you've never set eyes on them before and they've just come off the pavement. But what, like, how did I don't like understand how you you like had heard of him? Or like, I don't because I know Morrissey was like pretty. Um, Fervent in the sort of yeah he was well that was the deal really he was like that's the how people got to know him. King, wasn't he yeah because that's how he got to be known in Manchester initially because he wrote letters to the music press about the New York Dolls he was the self-appointed leader of the New York Dolls <laughs> for, uh, and membership uh, numbering one yeah <laughs> uh, number of members one uh, but that's how one of my uh, sort of friends approached him just as said you know they approached him in a record store because he was stood by the New York Dolls section, all two of their albums. He's so on brand. Guiding it, yeah. yeah. Guiding it, rather. Um, but so for a, a few years before, I'd become aware of that he was someone who was a singer and took himself seriously as a singer and a writer. And then I think he, 
it, it sort of fallen off from a little bit. He hadn't been in a band for a while, uh, but it just was in the back of my mind. And so this thing about the girl groups and uh, at that time in 1980, 1981, in in England, in the UK, um, rather the sort of the the energy, the burgeoning scene, if you like, was what was known in the music press as the new pop which is actually quite an interesting, to be fair, it was quite yeah. an interesting scene and it was early Simple Minds associates whose records still sound great to this day uh-huh. and it was this, you know, these, these it was very specific in, mm-hmm. and so it wasn't your sort of what became just naff 80s pop after that, it was sort of quite switched on young people who would turning away from punk but still had the DIY ethos. Was and this the, like kind of like the middle ground between the new wave scene and and punk? Yeah. It was between, well, it was post-punk, but post-punk gone kind of posh a little bit, really. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it, that was that was a, a very distinctive sounding thing. So that was starting to happen. And um, anyway, so if you were switched on, you know, you were, I guess, in, in your, you were into that stuff. But so to be into these scratchy, odd records sang by adenoidal usually girls from 1965 with uh-huh. loads of reverb on was was quite unusual but it just sounded weirder and more interesting to me that music so i I'd, I'd got this idea about that being the direction but anyway gene even though it's not swamped in reverb um you know that riff down at that time some of the songs i was writing i was imagining as being piano riffs uh-huh. And it's not really that much of a stretch to imagine that. Yeah, as a no, sort definitely. Of girl group song. Well, it, it was this track the sort of like uh, was this the Road to Damascus track, the, the holy shit track that when you and Morrissey got together, you were like, right, this is working, or was it a different one? No, do you know what the truth? What was what is great now? I think of it is that everyone we wrote, in I'd say maybe the first seven or I don't know, maybe even went for the first twenty. Everyone felt like first no, no. This is the road. To, <laughs> this is the road to, to Damascus. No, this one's better. It almost seemed like every song we wrote, yeah. with the exception of one or two, that we were like, oh, that's pretty good. But almost everyone was like, the new one was the best one. Have you ever had a furtive um, or a fertile mo- like patch like that in your life since? Because like obviously, most some songwriters can can knock out about ten tracks of which maybe one will be really, really, really good. But like, it must be really difficult to capture that, that special bond well I have you know I mean whether they're, they're regarded with such status um, I, I doubt but I wrote yeah I have had those moments frankly, to be honest with you mm-hmm. um, you know I say in, in the late 2000s you know that song I wrote for um, Modest Mouse Dashboard was a really big college hit in America and it was a really it was a really good track I'm really proud of it and then not too long after that I wrote this song with the cribs. We share the same skies. Oh, I, mean, I love that track. Nice that, was, one, yeah. that was on Match of the Day for about like two yeah. or three years. Yeah, I know. You know you've made it. <laughs> but and they, you know, in my mind, I've been you know doing it a long time. But what they stand up to me, yeah, with the best of my stuff. You know, I mean, you you're never going to be able to compete with the way the Smiths mythology has sort of blown up. But I have had some of those periods. Yeah, I mean, get get the message by Electronic was I really loved, and I wrote that a few days before get the message uh, before getting away with it um mm. i've had you know i've been very lucky but particularly the smiths so you know we wrote it we wrote always in batches of three two never seemed to be enough because i thought well, we're, we're on a roll this afternoon <laughs> yeah. and what, four so you like write be... three tracks in an afternoon oh, no, always three tracks <laughs> oh yeah God. like how do, do, yeah. do you come with everything kind of prepped or are you like sitting on the edge of the bed just like scrambling away your brain going at 200 percent yeah mostly the, the the latter yeah mostly and the greatest um you know the 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 best times of writing with with the for the smiths was when when that happened when morrissey had come around for a songwriting session and um you know um what would happen was we'd exchange small talk we both wanted to get on with it we both I can't imagine loved it. Like, too much small talk. Going no, on. we were Well, that's what I mean. We wanted to get on with it because we we're so excited about what would happen. And I really enjoyed when I wrote a book a, a few years ago, my autobiography. These were the bits that I really, kind of, really enjoyed reliving and writing. Yeah. It was so great, and um, and I enjoyed being someone who's got the opportunity to say it, you know, uh-huh. let alone live it. But I remember, you know, when we we both be so excited about getting together. We were together all the time, every day. 
uh, but this is even the very early days of the band and including even the days before when it was just the two of us mm. it wasn't that long maybe seven or eight months um, but so we'd have this sort of almost like pause you know he'd come in and we'd, we'd be exchanging small talk for 10-15 minutes in my little attic and um, and then literally I'd get a little cassette machine between my knees um, and uh, because he would be sat on the edge of a table and we'd be honestly two and a half feet away from each other's faces <laughs> and I'd have I'd know what the chords were and everything but I'd be pulling I'd be sort of pulling it out of the air often mm. and he'd be willing me on and as I remember it, it was like when I, when I pressed the record it was like we would both be br- breathe in and as this thing happened it was never 45 minutes of trying to make something work it was press record and I was Oh. kind of channeling it in a way that's the best yeah, way to describe well, it yeah that's what creativity is like you don't really know where it comes from but it comes from somewhere yeah I mean essentially though I always I learned from my early teens though to always be kind of prepared so what, always and I'm like that now I never I never jam just sit down and jam, very rarely just yeah, jam with people I th- well I think that's the, the, the best way and the best, the best people do but there's a whole different spark on top of that that you can't really prepare for and, and when when Morrissey was coming in what, did he just have like a like I imagine he had his his quill out and he was like <laughs> penning Parchment. as he went <laughs> uh, in the early days he brought he brought lyrics uh, printed but we found that quite quickly after the third or fourth attempt at that that it was better if I gave him the music and he went home with a cassette and t- 24 hours later well, he's he, got the- he'd, he'd done he'd done either of them all yeah. or he'd, he'd cracked one of them uh, 48 hours later all three were done and that never changed right the way through the band I mean he was so so inspired and so quick well, he's got the oddest um, sort of timing with melody mm. it's it, it's just not it's not simple pop melodies here and not there. obvious like, no. yeah, it's, it's really not obvious and you mm. can you can tell that he studied that like it's not like he's doing it and he doesn't know what he's doing. He's like, right, then we're gonna we're gonna do this pop, but we're gonna do it different. Well, we developed that. Um, both of us developed uh, without without realizing it. Well, I didn't realize that I was doing it, but when I look back now, you know, the the band who later on when we wrote whatever Panic or How Soon Is Now or whatever, that we were much more skillful. We're still ourselves and still idiosyncratic, mm-hmm. but much more skillful uh, than we were. Uh, in the er- in the early days, which is you know as it should be, but um, we we definitely uh, n- we naturally got better and better really quick. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, Gene is was uh, so that was about I don't know it's it's around about maybe fifth, sixth, seventh song. We uh-huh. we ever wrote together? So that's what your third session. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. No, that's, well. that's right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, and but I remember exactly at the moment. You know, I remember that writing session very, very well. You know, and you um, don't forget stuff like that. Uh, no, and um, it, it, you know, it, in the time it took me to play, it. but I'd I'd had, in that case, in the case of Gene, I had that tune in my mind for a couple of weeks was that, 10 days yeah. was that the same session as Charming Man I know it came out on the, the B set and the single Did no it wasn't it was before it was before before not that long after everything happened very in close succession with the Smiths but it was it was part of the early lot we wrote for anyone who, who's aware of this stuff it was a, around exactly around the same time we wrote You've Got Everything Now um, and um, Accept Yourself um, the first lot of sessions the very first one was Suffer Little Children and Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Hand That Rocks the Cradle was the first song we wrote together properly. And uh, and uh, Suffer Little Children, that was the first session. And then next session was Handsome Devil, Miserable Lie. And I think it could have been Real Around the Fountain, something like that. And then Gene was probably the third or fourth session. It's uh, not bad for a couple of days' work, is it? No, like? it's good, yeah. We were super into it. <laughs> I yeah. think a lot of people probably work at that for about 10 years and don't get anywhere close. I don't think we... Except for the very, very first effort, we we had this song that Morrissey wrote the words to, called "Don't Blow Your Own Horn," and I, I, I <laughs> it sounds like such a Morrissey track yeah. as well, doesn't very it? Very first song, <laughs> and I I put music to it, and I, neither of us were really that happy with it. Really, that was our very first. That could have been the we, end of it if it was the first one. We went, yeah, it was, but we immediately just got on "Hand That Rocks the Cradle," so and off we went. It was like a, a very, very short, almost false start, 
But aside from that, we never wrote a song that never came out. And it came out immediately. Every single one came out. Everyone knows there isn't any songs we wrote that didn't really happen. What did you and Morrissey have in common outside of music? Did you have anything? Because like, and you both come from like your your parent. I might be wrong here, but like you you come from Irish families. Oh yeah. You both went to Catholic grammar schools, I think. Yeah. Much like myself. Yeah. Uh, also, on a side note, Headmaster's Ritual is the one of the songs I think I can relate to better than anything else. Yeah. About it's the best song ever written about going to a Catholic. Yeah, grammar school. I play. Well, I play that in my current set, and when I sing it, I really. I, I, it feels like everyone can relate to it, you know, <laughs> yeah, especially in the time. you know, especially in the have, UK or whatever. Have you, you know. ever seen Radiohead's cover? Yeah, of it? yeah, it's it's actually a good Smiths cover. There's not oh, many yeah. of them out there. No, I agree. But what we had in common, we, you know, is it was great that we are. Uh, it was handy that we're very different people, in personality-wise. Um, that was good, and still is. Um, and uh, in terms of having stuff in common, well, we had. Humor, as, as most people, <laughs> yeah. mates, you know, you have to have that in common. We really had that wordplay. We really had in common, uh, very into sort of very into kind of witty wordplay. I think, yeah, my fu- my favorite Smiths lyric. Well, not my favorite Smiths lyric, but my fa- the funniest Smiths lyric is, um, frankly, Mister Shankly. Uh, was frankly, Mister Shankly, his position I've held. It, it pays, pays by my way and corrodes my soul. I didn't know, realize you wrote poetry. I didn't realize you wrote such bloody awful poetry. Yeah, I pissed myself laughing the first time I heard that. Yeah, there's like genuinely walking down the street. I think I just bought like um, Queen is Dead. Yeah, and I was listening to it and I was just like pissing myself laughing. I don't think I've ever done that to like <laughs> like serious music. Before. Yeah, there's a lot of killer lines. A lot of killer lines. Well, in in Gene, you know what? Again, when you know when I knew I was going to be talking to you and I thought about it. Uh, it's you know the lines like there's ice on the th- ice on the sink where we bathe you know how can you call this a home you know when you know it's a grave and um, cash on the nail it's just a fairy tale that I think was the most was the first fairly explicit uh, and obvious um, uh, sign of of uh, where we were coming from. One of many, in even you know, one of the songs I mentioned before, the very first, uh, second, second song, the first writing session, um, Suffer Little Children, for example, mm. Oh Manchester, so much to answer for. You know, that set off a thing about us. That we, you know, we are from Manchester, we, name, we mention it in, in our songs. But in Gene, the narrative of it and, and the imagery, it, it was very unusual at the time. And now you go, oh, yeah, it's that kitchen sink drama stuff. Mm. Well, this was the first time we sort of we really hung that on a flag and you know the stuff that we then aesthetically got connected to and that we inspired a lot of the imagery and the words of playwright Sheila Delaney in those 60s films and everything it's it's most this this is the first sort of hint of it in Gene but that's not that wasn't done that much in pop music but before that like you know the What's that movie called? Friday night, Saturday morning. That was uh, a massive film. Um, films, yeah, yeah, like that. That sort of uh, young desperation. I'm not going to take it anymore. Like yeah. there, there was a there was a. Lo- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot of people in punk rock shout, and I'm not going to take it anymore, but they weren't doing it from the, the, the same sort of, I don't know, like, as you say, kitchen sink drama, the, the same sort of grit, but done with the same sort of wistful well, you know, way with words. Well, all of that, a thing that we, you know, now know more about. Um, I think a lot because of the band was had was forgotten in 1982. It was forgotten other than by people who were in the films and people who were worked on the films. I mean, it'd be using that imagery in the in the records and on the sleeves and all of that was it never been done before and it, and it it was from a forgotten time, but it was right on the money. It it was it just felt right for the moment. It felt very hip felt very modern it was certainly unusual and uh, and and you know went with what we were about really went with the music a lot of it was uh, without even having to be too obvious about it a lot of it was about feminism feminist politics obviously um Did which you... was very much of the times you know all yeah. your, you know I'm very proud of that um as time, more and more times gone on I don't bang a drum about it but I am very proud of it that um you know that that generation of young young men and women but young indie first wave of indie men uh-huh. um and I, I have to give a lot of credit to the music press for it as well for making it very giving everyone a manifesto that it wasn't you I mean you know i had no idea that 35 years later you know girl, girls would be having to like form groups to Try and not get hassled at gigs. And, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It just young men from what who were around me in the Manchester scene and the factory scene and all that. They, they, you know, sexual politics were just right on the money. It wasn't even, you know, it wasn't even an issue. You but know? would you not get shit from people? Uh, maybe people that would go to the gigs or 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 people outside of the band for talking about such things because it was it was such a, a foreign concept. Obviously, the the, the in the, in punk rock. Feminism was a, a, a massive thing, but like in the wider community, um, no. You know, as I remember it, what's well, a good question actually? In the, when you say in the wider community, because it's easy to sort of look back at things with rose tinted spectacles. But as I remember it, the the uh, the music press and there was fanzines. There was one called City Fun in Manchester, and there was a bunch around the country. And the network of what was the early indie scene was that everyone was on the same page and uh, it was almost like didn't have to be discussed really. Mm. You know, seriously. I mean, I know the world wasn't, I'm aware that it wasn't perfect and it may be, you know, if someone was in one of the minorities, they might say, well, you know, you're remembering it wrong. But, you know, you didn't, it didn't, musicians and sportsmen didn't have to stand up against racism and and, uh, uh, sexism and homophobia in the way we do now, see, it's I, almost like things have gone backwards. The, but I know I sound like a bit of an old no, fogey. No, I, like, I, t- I totally agree. I mean, like I don't remember Thatcher's Britain much because I was like sitting mm. chewing on rusks or I wasn't even born at that point. Like, but uh, it feels to me that like in a from a political climate, like where you've got far right, a lot of far right, um, and you've got the the left, and there's this big clash happening, and, and the, the finances of, uh, around the country aren't exactly brilliant. This is what I imagine. Like my Thatcher's Britain is. Right now, this yeah, this whole, this whole Brexit shit. Oh no, I'm, I've been I've been asked about that quite a lot. Um, you know, uh, so much so, you know, and um, that there's got to be something in it. You know, uh, well, there's a lot of good punk bands. There's a lot of good punk bands forming. There's a lot of teenagers that are angry. Uh, absolutely, yeah. and I think, and it's the same in rap music as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's no way it's not. It, there's no way that it's not going to have an impact on on. The way writers, particularly young writers, starting out, uh, are gonna if we're gonna talk about the feelings and I don't know, I'm a generally creative people, particularly who want to do something that isn't just you know a mainstream uh, that are outside the mainstream. They're gonna have a they're gonna have something to say about. It's pretty rich for that. I'd rather it wasn't that way, but. No, I, I definitely. There's think... There's a lot of really good guitar bands doing a lot, but I can't wait for the real next true alternative band to mainstream crossover and really. Fuck shit up. That's an amazing moment. I mean, we were <laughs> we were super wanting to take on that mantle. But you you did because like I mean I, I from I mean like I, I've done a lot of re- like not researching you guys. Well, I've just been a massive fan for a long yeah. time. But like uh, Spin Magazine and NME both dubbed you like the band like the 
the greatest band of all time and The Queen is Dead is the best album of all time. So you kind of did have that mantle in the sort of short period that the Smiths were together, really. Yeah, well, well the thing about I know it's been said by many older musicians before, but really getting on top of the pops was absolutely like kicking the doors down. Did you uh, did you mime when you got on? Yeah, we did. The, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, you could be more effective if you mimed, frankly. You, you could. <laughs> and um, uh, uh, But because before that, uh, for a number of years, the the punk bands, who we got to remember when when I came out with the Smiths, I thought I love punk music, but I thought a lot of the bands were just old biddies. <laughs> I, really I thought a lot of them were just old ugly biddies. I yeah. was really on one about my generation. I think you know I was really bratty about it, and um, it's one of the reasons I stopped doing interviews because all I was doing was just slagging off all these old punk bands. <laughs> and, uh, was this like what, like doing interviews in like the eighties, like early eighties? Yeah, you can, honestly, I only did a few, and I was just like, really on one because I, <laughs> who were I, the bands I, that you were going at? Um, well, I, 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 I avoided naming names to be honest. Uh, yeah, fair I avoided enough. Naming I, names. I, but where it got a little weird, uh, position. But where it got a little <laughs> weird was because um, that was Morris's age group. Because we were a different age, remember? Yeah, of course, you were a lot younger than But what ended up was I'd, um, I'd worked in the clothes shops in Manchester, one in particular. <laughs> and, um, and I'd been around town from being about 15, 16. And I'd been patronised and I'd had to hear these, some musicians from the Manchester scene and roadies from the Manchester scene banging on and on and on and on about punk. Now, I had all the Wayne County singles and I had all the, Dolls stuff and mm. all of that, and so you know, and and I already loved. I, I had a sort of education for that, and I, I like that sort of music. And I didn't need to hear these what I thought were old bastards who were all <laughs> probably only about, about twenty five themselves, twenty six, yeah, exactly. kind of patronising me. And and also, you know, I was like, be honest, I was, I, I wanted to, I was like, you know what, I'll form a band and knock you fuckers off your perch, mm. and and. Um, and we did that, you know. It's the sort of grit that only really comes out of like the north. I think that that's sort of going right. Okay, well we're going to do this. We're going to fucking do this. And we're going to fucking yeah. knock you off. Like I mean, it, it came along again with like Oasis and, and stuff like that. True, it was like a very sort of like northern, Attitude, northern yeah. thing. No, true, yeah. Um, no, it's good. It's it's you know it only really belongs in the uh, in that in the minds and hearts of young boys and girls. But it's it's the it's the underdog story. Like you just everybody wants to be the underdog, and they want to they've, they've got their eyes on who they want to beat. And yeah, that, no, it's, and that's it's almost great. bigger than being famous. No, it was great, and and I mean, for honest, also for us, um, Factory, oh, I mean, absolutely respect. Uh, and again, that's another thing. When I put my book out, I was really happy to pay tribute. It's a great thing about being in a position where you can mm. write an autobiography. And one of the great things about getting older, um, you know, the positive side of that is that you can really get to pay tribute to people who might. Other, you know, in your own way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And factory, but factory was so all-encompassing. And I, and fact, Tony Wilson, bless him, had asked me, yeah, at seventeen, six before the Smiths, sixteen, seventeen, he'd asked me to join a couple of his factory bands. And as desperate as I was to make a record, I had a real sense of, well, you're the older lot. I, I had a real sense of like my generation, yeah. really. You know, um, I don't think I was that bratty, but. They were older, and they were sort of really revered all that punk stuff. And I was like, no, no. I had a feeling mm. that my kids of my age were going to add a different thing coming, you know. Um, we had slightly different values. We had definitely had different musical values, mm. 100%. Oh, yeah, well, like, totally. Like, the, 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 the virtuosity of the music that they played in the Smiths wouldn't have worked in punk. No, no, and the sound wouldn't, you know, for, as, a, <coughs> as a guitar player. So, for example, right. it's very easy to describe, but I did. I, it's one of the reasons I sounded the way I did because I was like, I don't want to sound like Steve Jones. I mean, who doesn't love bodies and who doesn't, you know, you know, no feelings and yeah. whatever, on and on and on, right? But, um, you know, me and I guess Edwin Collins, um, who just come a little bit before um, Roddy Frame at the time. A bunch of other people, maybe Charlie Birchall from uh, you know Simple Mind, especially the yeah. early stuff. You know, in our guitar playing, there was like I don't want to make too much of it, but it's political. When you're young, everything is like I will not sound like that. My, <laughs> my sound is it's not accidental. You're very uh, and look. When we, Did you have to change up your sound because of the other people who were playing guitar in your sort of generation? Well, it was good to do that because yeah, was, like yeah, you've obviously got uh, the the. I mean, it's it's 
often talked about, like the sort of revered that revered sound that, that you're yeah. sort of well well known for. I mean, many different sounds like over, yeah, like, that, over yeah. the years, but like especially that one. Did you ever go like look over at Orange Juice and uh, Edwin Collins and be like, uh, oh, right, fair enough, I'm going to yeah. new new pedal, yeah, new guitar. No, I did, I did, and think the backer. No, that's no, that's right, and you should do that. I think I think that's great. Uh, what one of the things about that, since you asked, is that um, so. Um, a load of things, what happened after Punk, one of the things that Punk did for my generation was um, that it, it left you with a load of really narrow um, options. And you and it's a, to describe it in guitar is actually a pretty handy way. So I, I'd already learned to play, you know, James Williamson was, I was still probably he's my favourite ever guitar player from mm -hmm. the Studios, so I've got, I've got no, no issue with like really loud, gnarly guitar. But again, you know, you want something from, for your own generation. And um, so after punk, it was like, okay, um, no, you couldn't play with distortion. That was too rockist. You couldn't play with a load of effects, really. That was, these were the options left open to me. So if you were the guitar player in a four-piece band, as I was, and you were the one who's holding up all the melody and all the all the the rhythm there's no keyboards and there's no whatever there isn't a second guitar player you're left with two options it's interesting you brought up edwin because you either play very scratchy to, to keep that sound going and to keep to fill out the sound you mm. if you've got a clean sound because bluesy rock was out and a lot of effects was out you either have to keep playing very scratchy like funk like edwin was doing uh, to fill out the sound or in my case, you end up playing lots of these arpeggios and ringing and all these little tunes to keep the sound going. Otherwise, it just goes strum dead. Yeah. And um, so that helped me out. Those politics, those musical politics, absolutely helped me helped me out. And, and taken back in from the, the Phil Spector sort of like arrangements and stuff absolutely. as well. He, like, I mean, that's that's, that's, a, that's a big on the on the style. So like you know, this 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 must live fast, die young. Um, you know, with like. What, how many years? Like, was it like five? Just six? about five, I think. Yeah, just five. Yeah, five years. Um, left like the legacy that I mean is still. I mean, there's teenagers still running about in Smith's t-shirts. I was. I bought a load of. I bought a load of um, seven inch from HMV, and they were on discount. And I brought them home, and I realised they're on discount because they're all fucking warped. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's nice one. I mean? The record. Yeah, well, I try. You know, I sort of, uh, I think I fixed that in the, in the 2000s. Yeah, the record company were like pretty, they, they were they were off the case in the 90s. Yeah, no, but like, I, I mean, they, there's certain bands that will live forever when it when it comes to teenagers yeah. and yeah. and like especially teenage boys. I'm speaking from experience. Like, uh, kids will always play Nirvana. They'll always play Ace of Spades by um, Motorhead. Mm. They'll always play Seven Nation Army by, uh, by um, White, White Stripes. stripes. Yeah. And they'll always try and play this match. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, we, um, with the exception of Ace of Spades, uh, I mean, that's uh, you're absolutely right, I think. It's just all, a, all the a lot, but with really the loud, dumb no, it's teenage right. track. Like. But the thing, the thing that we, but with the exception of that, you know, we, we, were, we were different because we were English. Yeah. You know, and, um, and Morrissey and myself had grown up with, we, you know, Brian Eno, had, Brian Eno solo records had happened, uh, and the the post punk thing had happened. So Wire had happened, and the Buzzcocks had happened. Yeah. So what I'm talking about the kind of intellectual end of uh, of DIY music had mm -hmm. happened in the UK, and that was massive on us because we wanted to be intellectual as well. Okay, so it's interesting. You know, you mentioned like uh, Seven Nation Army and these dumb, great sort of dumb riffs. Well. Yeah. But we were about clever, dumb riffs. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. And, and it was in the music, and it was in the words too. But that wasn't because uh, we wanted to, you know, display it. Well, speaking personally, anyway, it wasn't about like displaying our intellect. It was because you, the, because how a devoto had happened, as I've said, and Eno and, and Wire and the, these people who had approached. And I've got to say, in my case, well, Susie Sue, I thought, you know, what she was singing about. It, it wasn't just boring stuff, you know. And so I, we came out of this very uh, um, sort of self-aware, clever sort of uh, uh, post-punk scene, I guess. The, like the, that time of the sort of teenager's life that I was talking about is the same time when you get into the Smiths, you're starting to walk around with 
Larkin or WB Yates or something popping out of your laser pocket half for <sighs> show half for show and half because you're actually legitimately reading it yeah. I, I don't think anybody in my A level literature actually <laughs> shout out to Mr. White who would love this because he, he was the one that like he used to teach us through Smith's lyrics oh nice um, Mr. White when, when we were doing where like, was that uh, the Christian Brothers Grammar School in Oma he was one of the one of the good guys oh that's great and uh, he yeah. was he was teaching us through because he, he was just like, what was that, Noma? Yeah, Noma. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, and he was like, right, I know I can, I can get that. Also, one of the weirdest things, right? Some a friend of mine put up on Facebook. I think, I think it's almost ten years anniversary since Morrissey played the Leisure Centre in Noma. Like, right. The only thing, the only thing that's ever happened, and we still to this day, nobody in the town can figure it out, right? Yeah. Because number one, he got. Like the leisure centre was famous for going and go for a swim and then you'd have a soggy sausage roll afterwards but he had the sausage rolls wiped off the menu for a week which the whole time was raging about right <laughs> but the leisure centre's tiny and it's like in the middle of like you know when it comes to touring in the middle of nowhere yeah yeah and nobody yeah. in the town has any answers and we've tried to find out going why the fuck did he play because he played yeah. like big shows everywhere else yeah well I mean we couldn't wait to uh, all over Ireland the south as well you know, we we couldn't wait to get over there, and it, it a, quite a big it, a big deal was made of it in '85 when we we went and we played Letterkenny and Coleraine, and then all these places in the mm. south that people haven't played for a while, Watford and I think Wexford maybe and Galway and stuff, Cork, um, and people, nobody ever plays those places. No, people still remember those. No, I mean yeah, Let, Letterkenny and Coleraine gigs. I, I want to say. It was the Nolans who played there before that, <laughs> uh, and so you know, very different to what we were doing. You know, God bless them. But yeah. uh, we we didn't think twice about it. In fact, we were kind of on one about going. You know, we really wanted to go. I think that's to do especially with our, around our, that our time heritage. as well. Like Northern Ireland's not exactly the easiest place like to no, to, go, to go and play. I mean, the Clash tried to turn up and play in Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, it was, I mean? it was very different, but it had a real vibe. It was. I'm, I played Belfast all the time. You know, that's great. I played there. About six months ago, I played at Ulster Hall. It was fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wicked venue. So when, like, when everything finished in Manchester, like the whole Manchester baggy scene started, where 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 did you sit with that? Did you decide, like, you know, Joe, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna take some some pills and go to the Hacienda? Well, I, well, I was 24, so of course I did. <laughs> uh, but also, you know, my new songwriting partner. That's mad, isn't it? You'd, like the whole band had finished by the time you were 24. Yeah. Like where, like that. Most bands are just about getting going yeah. at that time. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, the, I'd started writing some songs with Bernard Sumner uh, for fun, really, initially. Um, and, and you know, from New Order and Bernard being one of the co-owners of the Hacienda, yeah. it was, you know, pretty much like an extension of both our houses. However, uh, I was not one for, you know, as Noel puts it, running around the Hacienda with his shirt off. <laughs> um, I sort of took my my chemical experience Experiments and always have slightly more seriously. Uh, so I was sort of making music in a basement studio, like just going bananas with technology loops and synths and stuff. And um, I learned during that period. Just a mad scientist. Uh, yeah, I did. And you know what? It was great. I always like so. For, I'm I'm known for being a rock guitar player, and, and I always been known for being in the Smiths, and I'm proud of that. That's fine. And um, you know, some people prefer the, the. Some people in America definitely prefer Modest Mouse. But you know, I'm super proud of the band I formed and all of that. And that's why I'm here. You know, um, but um, when the band exploded, um, to be honest about it, you know, it was a really heartbreaking time. It was heavy. It was very, very, very heavy. Um, and then, but it didn't half help me out that this cultural explosion of utter newness. Uh, in technology, in graphic design, in drugs, in music, in thinking, in clothes, everything. I mean, it really was amazing what happened when in that explosion in Manchester in 87, 88. Everyone was talking different, everyone was thinking different, you know, like young people just had this sort of knowing about you're either on one or you're not, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the problem with that scene moving ahead is that it just got milked and went on far too long. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of terrible shit came out of it. But it's the, like a three-day party when it could have been, oh one, one, it could have been one and a half. Yeah, it's so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was so exciting. Uh, and, it could, and it could have happened anywhere and had to happen somewhere, but that it happened in my hometown. Uh, and my partner owned the, the Hacienda. Uh, it was a really good antidote to all that heaviness of the Smith split. So I wasn't running around, 
you know, the Hacienda on the shirt off, like hugging everybody far from it. But I was making a lot of experiments in technology. Now, as I say, I've been known for being a rock guitar player, I always will be, and that's what, you know, what I want on my headstone, you know, a, you? a guitar player. But I'm, I'm glad that I got really into learning about technology. No one really, frankly, no one gets... music? Yeah, loads, but no one really gives a shit that I did that. No one wants, it wants to hear me make a, make a hi-hat out of a, out of a square wave, right, which I can do. Yeah. And no one wants to hear me program synthesizers, which I can do, but uh, I was given the opportunity to do it. And I'm I glad don't think that I've ever heard any of your I dance, dance records. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of Tronic did it, you know, that band yeah. they had with Bernard Sumner and Pet Shop Boys. Yeah. And I did some stuff with that. Like, I did a track with that band K-Class and, you know, some stuff with ACR sort of around that time. But I locked myself away in the studio and, you know... I'd made quite a lot of money and I was still only 24 and I was hiding away how from the world. How does that not go to your head? Like, how do you not end up with, like, addictions or spending it on stupid stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I did all of that. Uh, yeah. That was on the list of to-dos. Done, done. Yeah, done. crash your car, wear sunglasses indoors, uh, court case... Uh, not so. Uh, I don't think that was on my list. <laughs> yeah, but all of that—that's that, that part. That's part of the. That's being part of in a big story. band. It's part of being in a big band. Yeah, you need. A, you yeah. need. You need to have a good court case in there. Yeah, a court like, case, and someone dies, so it could have been worse. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And then um, the so like the the solo albums. I mean, like I kind of want to talk about the the cribs and modest mice because I noticed um, something that the two albums that you featured. I know you featured on more more stuff for modest mice, but like the the two albums that you were on with the cribs and modest mice, they were their most successful commercially right yeah <laughs> yeah um, uh, discuss well <laughs> okay well they they were probably maybe i brought a melodic sense to it i think and also um, by the way the cribs will absolutely kick my ass if i don't say this yeah joint commercially because they've had two number eight records of course they will yeah, yeah, no, they, I'm, yeah I'm, i'll be careful yeah don't want to get Sorry, the, the wrath of the lads <laughs> um well you know i bring a melodic sensibility to it and also you know when I, if, if i join a band there's they, they there's a certain amount of, t of attention that comes with it so i have to deliver on that now um you know i am also aware that um hardcore fans you know because uh, modest mouse had uh, had made really innovative, interesting records before I joined. Um, uh, we had the number one American album with uh, We Were Dead. Um, I'm aware that, you know, you're going to get, because I, you know, cause I, th I know I've, what, how fans think that you're going to get that, oh, Johnny Marr, well, he's made them more commercial, he's made them more commercial. Well, what I learned was that uh, what happens is you have to go, well, over the years, when the, when you get away from it over the years, Let's see if the records still stand up. That's how I'm judging my time in those bands. Yeah. So with the Modest Mouse record, does it sound great? And with Ignore the Ignorant by the Cribs, does that still I sound still great? I still go back to that album quite a lot. I, I'm really proud of both those yeah. records. And I'm going, well, you know what? They're slightly different, which is why that I got invited to be in those bands. Uh, and, and also, you know, there's a real brotherhood in both those bands. Yeah, big time. Uh, you know, I mean, the Cribs, it was like being in the family yeah. and um, and also I think they they would say the same about being in the mouth. We, we, my kids grew up thinking of the Cribs as family, you know. Uh -huh. And um, so th the thing is, I think both those, if you ask any members of those bands what, you know, what it was like me being in the band, it wasn't like some mercenary rock star guy <laughs> who just like, just You're comes just like in. landing in. All right, guys, yeah. here's what we're going to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was no. I, I get really. Uh, I, I'm really committed when I'm in. And I'm. Re it is like family to me. But um, uh, you judge the songs are what you judged on, and uh, we, we, th th I think all those songs stand pretty good. Because you've done three solo albums and obviously the Johnny Marr and the Healers records, yeah. would you join another band? Would you never say never, or would you just continue making solo records? Yeah, I don't. I, I think after the Cribs, I didn't. I kind of went, you know what, this has been, a, this is great. I love being in the Cribs, absolutely, and I love the guys, and uh, at some of the shows we played, most, nearly every show was just like, wow. Yeah. Carnage. Just so good, yeah. They're such a good band. They're great, I loved it, and I kind of, almost as well as in tribute to, in tribute to Ross and Ryan and Gary, I was almost like, you know what, I'll, I'm going to go solo now, That this is it, this is as good as it gets, really, I've had such a good time. And, um, I mean, there, there really was a, 
you know, incredible time for me as well. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, I'm, I'm not really interested. I don't really see that now. And particularly because so, creatively, it's a lot more work, you know, I mean, like uh, than just rocking up at Reading with your sunglasses on and being a legend, <laughs> right? Uh, having your own band, running your own band is, is uh, you know, it's a business. Um, not, not first, it isn't a business, yeah, but it's there's a lot of pressures economically. You know, I have to, I have to uh, look after mm. other guys's, you know, rent and mortgages and stuff, and that's all right. But also, yeah, it's a lot more work because you know you you have to you come up with the, all the words and the titles and the sleeves and the videos and all of that stuff, which I do in my solo stuff. Um, but, but that's why I like it. I like coming up with the titles and I like finding stuff to write about and I like uh, singing and I like the shows and having to be doing my vocal exercises. It's it's not it's much easier just putting everything into the <laughs> yeah. guitar. No, because because the guitar comes so naturally to me, you know, from being a little boy and guitar technology and everything, it's like second nature to me. But uh -huh. you have to apply yourself to the other stuff. But I'm not ready to sort of chill out too much yet. When you were jumping into like the healer stuff and, and you were like doing more um, singing up front, I was thinking about this today and I was like, when I was in, <clears throat> when I was in a band, we had our, our guitarist wrote all the songs. Um, yeah. And he was like, like absolutely incredible guitarist, great guitarist. And then the band split up, and he started out doing his own thing. And he like got into the point where he was like singing the songs and and yeah. writing the songs. And he was kind of like uh, at the start, like he's absolutely flying, like killing it now, right? But at the start, like the first couple of tracks, like the track, the music was good, everything was yeah. good, but he was finding his voice. Yeah. And I had to say to him, I was like, well, our old singer started singing when he was like fifth, fourteen, fifteen. Yeah. You're almost starting to do that now. So, like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, I do. Yeah. It, well, it, that's a trap that guitar players can fall into. But you know, um, and I think that it almost yeah. hurts people's feelings as well because they write the songs and they play guitar all yeah. the time. They're like, I need to be instantly good at this because I'm. This is what I do. But I hear you. Yeah, it's a yeah. Different vibe, right? No, it is. Yeah. No, I think you're right. You know, because the the people like you're being compared to and the people like you're sort of following and the standard that you mm. you're up to, they, these people have been doing it for thirty years. But in my case, what I did was um, with the healer stuff, I deliberately kind of undersang because I I thought, I, and it was I think it was a mistake. And sometimes there's about four or five songs that I like, but I I um. I deliberately sort of downplayed it because I, I, I guess I just wanted to sort of ease into it and I didn't want to get into people's faces. You know, actually, I think I was right in that. Mm. I think I had two choices. I had one where people go, oh, well, okay, it's a bit, like, underwhelming or, you know, you, you, you know, the vocals aren't a big deal. Or the, my other choice was to get in people's faces and be like, <laughs> and everyone go, wow, that's a, that's a bit weird. Is that, how you, Bush. Is, that how, yeah. is that how you really sound? You know, like Muse. Um, and find, try and find the middle ground. Um, yeah. And also, you know, the music, is actually not even that complicated. What me and my mates were listening to at that time in the early 2000s was a lot of psychedelic kind of rock and um I hadn't really ever done that before, and I'd avoided it when in the seventies. I was into like a lot of John Mayall, and I was into like. Uh, Do you hear what I pedal it? On a couple of songs, I did actually, but we listened to a lot of that. So journalists, you know, when journalists were like, "Oh, it sounds like Oasis," or "It sounds like the Stone Roses," I was like, "Well, you don't really know your shit there." To be honest <laughs> with you, because it's actually like yeah, yeah. it's like very very loud amplified Peter Green. So me and that, that well, time, those bands sounded like the Birds. Like you think? The, yeah, well, the, the, the Stone Roses, like the oh yeah, the well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But on the second album, so it was a way of. I actually was like, you know what? I'm, I don't expect that you don't know what you're talking about, really, because it's a little bit too nuanced. I mean, he said it very snobbily, but um, I was all right with that. But um, uh, you know, yeah, it was a process. And the other thing about that as well, um, the the thing with the healers was like, um, where well, it's different now, was that. I was representing the other two members of the band who were like my best mate was Zach, his, you know, Zach Starkey and I love and Alonzo Bevin as a bass player and where I'm at now is it's all about me but I took on that responsibility it's better that it's my, my band are like totally okay with me writing all the songs and the yeah, songs yeah. being about what I'm interested in I was trying to sort of be a little bit of a people pleaser I think and represent the tastes of all the band I think that's difficult I think sometimes with creativity it's good to have somebody leading it 100% yeah because yeah, like it, it just ends in heartbreak and everything takes longer 
Yeah, I just learned to and be a band leader. There's, I there's, think there's more. There's more hurt feelings. I think like I I, I don't know it from because I like sort of quit when I done. Uh, I, I stopped playing on the band, like, and I started different doing different projects, like record labels and uh, like writing books and doing this, that, and the other. And I quickly realized that the more people you have involved in it, the more people you have to ask about things. Yeah. So I always think that maybe just doing it yourself's better. And not, and you know what? It's the chemistry of of all teams, not just in bands, but I know about bands. That some people don't want to be leaders. Mm. You know, that's what makes a really band have that sort of chemistry I mean Andy Rourke you know my relationship with Andy all, all the way from being a, a teenager to the present day he's like he's sort of like it's a bit like tortoise and the hare you know he kind of like grounds me and I used to sort of elevate him a little bit I don't know whether elevate's the right word but so you know it's a little bit I, you know, I was super speedy and he was like much more sort of mellow and he's, he's an absolute he, he, that's one of the reasons, aside from his musicality, what makes him an archetypal bass player. Yeah, and he's, he's all one, bass players should be. Like he's that. one of my bass idols. Like I absolutely, absolutely love. Oh, Andrew good, yeah. yeah, no, I can, I, I can, I can still sort of play a little bit, but like he. Fuck bass players love Andy Rourke. One question I want to ask you. Well, it's not even really a question. I didn't know that. Like you're a Man City fan, and like how fervent a Man City fan are you? And yeah. obviously, growing up in Manchester, I'm assuming that you were a Manchester City fan your whole life, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not one of these out. ones that just came on with the, the no, oil money. You know? not, no, I went through all that, all that <laughs> horrible thirty years. No, 1972 was the first, f- the first game I went to, and I went to loads when I was a child. You know, so that was nine when I went to the first. Yeah, so since 1972, I've been a City fan, sort of man and boy, literally. You know. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end the podcast as a Manchester United fan. <laughs> uh, I knew it. You can see I it in my it. eyes. I knew that was coming, yeah. Uh, that and the fact that we're getting chucked out of the studio. So All we're, right, we're, Phil, we're, yeah. We're getting no, some eyes there. Um, Johnny, thank you so much thanks for, for, inviting for, me, for yeah. playing um, Jane and giving me some time. Uh, no, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Good luck with it all. Now might be the perfect time to invest in your education. If you have work experience and would like to return to study part-time for a diploma or degree in business, consider joining UCD Quinn School. Our flexible program means you can continue working whilst undergoing your studies. Find out more at ucd.ie forward slash Quinn and search part-time courses. UCD Lachlan Quinn School of Business. Developing impactful business leaders. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.